Hi, welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, and welcome to our Re-Air Summer. Summer is associated with transformation, personal development, and a sense of renewal before the new academic year begins. Our team at Stanford Psychology Podcast decided to take some time off, but don't worry, we are not going into radio silence. Instead, for every week until September 20th, we will air some of our favorite episodes around the topics related to personal development and self-improvement. We hope you will like it, and please don't hesitate to be in touch if you have any ideas for how our show can be improved in the new academic year. Thank you so much, and here's the episode. Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share their most recent work. This week, I was excited to chat with Juliana Schroeder, Associate Professor in the Management of Organizations at Berkeley Haas. She studies how people think about the minds of other people and how they are often wrong trying to understand what others are up to. Her work has been discussed in outlets ranging from Vice to The Atlantic and Forbes. In this episode, we review Juliana's recent exciting work on under-sociality. Talking to other people is often meaningful, not just for extroverts, and yet we hesitate to talk to others, making overly pessimistic predictions about how awkward and unpleasant such interactions would be. This leads us to, quote-unquote, mistakenly seek solitude. Juliana discusses what we can do to motivate ourselves to talk to others more, why that is so beneficial and why she herself struggles to do it. Hope you enjoy our conversation. This week on the Stanford Psychology Podcast, I am so excited to be talking with Juliana Schroeder and to have a conversation about conversations, really. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for having me. How did you become interested in conversations? How people talk to one another, what mistakes they make when they talk to one another? How did you first become interested? I, I think conversations are fascinating. I think Dan Gilbert called them the bread and butter of um, social relationships. You know, how do people build relationships? And a lot of my research is on also theory of mind, the way that we think about what's going on in other people's minds and how do we make judgments about people's mental capacities and how do we assess their mental states? And if you think about that, how do we do that? The way that we do it is through language. I mean, that's a huge piece of it, right? How do we read someone? You know, you have to you have to actually talk to them, or you could read kind of their nonverbals, like the way that you're kind of nodding at me right now, Eric. I'm I'm reading you through that. I'm getting some little glimpses, some insights into your mind. So the dynamic of a conversation between two people, sort of this intimate thing, which is how they build their relationship and how they come to be able to read each other's minds imperfectly, but you know, better than nothing. <laughs> is like really fascinating. And I think you could make like easily an entire career off of just studying that. You're saying we're better than chance, basically, at guessing what other people are thinking and what they're feeling, but we're also not perfect. And you talk about some mistakes that we make. So you seem to be saying we're not perfect at understanding one another. Yes, I actually just reviewed some of the research on this in terms of it's been called accuracy of mind reading, right? How accurate are we actually? And 
I think a lot of it depends on the comparison point. So I think you're exactly right to say that we're sort of better than chance. And so like a lot of domains, like think about being able to detect whether someone's lying, you know, oh, there's been a bunch of meta-analyses about that. And you would, you know, think that there's, we have some ability to detect and what the meta-analyses have kind of pegged that number at is like 54% chance of, you know, right. But now that, that statistic obscures a lot of information because it turns out that a lot of that is driven by truth bias that, um, um, people are particularly likely to guess that another person is telling them the truth. And so they tend to you know, get that right sometimes. And then if they're trying to guess whether or not someone's lying, they're actually below accuracy on that. So that's, you know, 54% is driven by a truth bias, essentially. Um, but you see in lots of other domains as well, when people are trying to guess like whether someone's being sarcastic or whether they're trying to be funny. So trying to read some of their complex intentions there, you know, basically, yes, they're a little bit better than chance, but they're not great. So it sort of leaves a lot to be desired. There's like all sorts of interesting factors that can push that around a bit. So, you know, even the medium by which you're communicating with the other person. So for the fact that we're talking with our voices now, that's giving you better insight than if we were writing to one another. And I have some some work on the way the medium affects conversations. And you have some work on what you call under sociality. And you have a paper on what you call under sociality. What is this word? What does it mean? <laughs> That's a good question. When we talk about under sociality, what we're talking about is that there are many cases in which people are less social than would be optimal for their own reported well-being. All right. And so, and that's why we call it under social sociality. It's also, of course, possible that sometimes people are over social. They're too social for their well-being, but we don't see that that sort of as, we don't see it as much of a, as a problem because whenever people are in those types of contexts where they're being forced to network all the time, like you think about MBA students in a, a business school where they're like often kind of doing all this networking, right? they can kind of recognize when they're sort of feeling tired and they're sort of like feeling like they're being over social and they can pull out of, you know, that context. But the problem with being under social, which is that, you know, you don't engage in the first place is that it becomes this wicked environment in the like Robin Hogarth sense of like, people don't learn from that, you know, so they don't learn that they could have had a better experience if they had been social because they just don't do it. And then they can never kind of update. Right. And so, but, Because of that, we see it as more of a problem that's more pervasive and like comes up in a lot of different contexts. And people don't don't ever like sort of update, so they don't they don't know that they could be more social. Like you actually need to run experiments where you force people to be social, so you can get the counterfactual of like what would have happened if they were social. We've done some research on this ourselves, and we've like looked at we've reviewed some of the other research on it. And we see this kind of under sociality occurring in lots of different contexts, like from people being willing to start a conversation with others to people like being willing to engage in acts of kindness, like giving compliments to others, showing gratitude to others, just providing social support, even like providing feedback, well-intentioned, like pro-social feedback or advice. And these are all contexts in which people will tend to underestimate the extent to which others will appreciate their gestures and the extent to which it will make them happy and then tend not to engage in it as much as we think they could for their own well-being. There's a big unspoken assumption here, which is that being social is good for our well-being and health. <laughs> and I can see that, okay, smoking is bad, eating bad food is bad for our health and well-being, sure, but being grateful to someone and saying something nice and giving a compliment, really, does that matter for us? 
Yeah, there's there's a ton of research on this that being social in lots of different forms and instantiations, whether you know, having close relationships with your family, to just you know being married compared to not being married, to having roommates, to living with people versus living alone, all these different ways it's been measured. You know, the the more social version always has sort of better is associated with better outcomes. And we say that being social is is correlated with being happy, healthy, and wealthy <laughs> because it's it's been correlated with emotional well-being. So people report that they feel happier when they are more social, sort of state-based, and when they're more socially embedded in their networks, so sort of more trait-based. People have better physical health outcomes. So like Julianne Holt-Lundsted has done some really nice meta-analyses where she's, she finds that Social measures are as associated with like physical health outcomes, like even things like how long you live, you know, mortality rates, as much so as things like smoking cigarettes and like obesity and like other things that you would very clearly associate with physical outcomes, kind of showing that if anything, sociality is as implicated in physical health as some of these other things. And then finally, wealthiness. Yeah people that are richer tend to be more socially integrated in their environment. So which is not to say that all this work is causal, right? You know, forcing people to be social does it lead to these outcomes. But um, there is some work that's done experiments in which they do exactly that. They like force people to be social and then try to measure some of these outcomes. This is some of the work that I've done. So a lot of the other stuff is like correlational. So they look at just associations that exist in the data, I think the stuff that's the most compelling is the experiments where you randomly assign people to be social or not, and then look at different outcomes. And we've done this in contexts where you might not really expect being social would necessarily have a positive impact. So for example, talking with a stranger, like on public transportation. <laughs> so we've done experiments where we go on trains and buses, and we've done it in you know airplanes now. We have people um, talk to a stranger in one experimental condition or just do whatever they want to do, which is usually not talk to someone in another condition. And then after they've had the experience, whether it's the, you know, the trip, the bus ride or the plane ride afterwards, we ask them, you know, what, what was that experience like for you? How happy do you feel now? So we ask about their mood and things. And what we find is that the people that talk very reliably were in, when they were in that condition, they report having a better experience and having a more pleasant mood by the end of the trip. You know, clearly you were just studying extroverts, right? Introverts would not benefit from this. <laughs> we, we have looked at the role of personality in, in quite a few studies. And it turns out that per people's personality and particularly the extroversion matters a lot for their predictions about the experience. Extroverts think it'll be a much more pleasant experience if they talk to someone compared to introverts. So uh, some introverts are like, that would be horrible. That would be a terrible experience. But when you run the actual experiments and actually ask people to be in the different conditions, what you find is that introverts and extroverts have very similar outcomes. If anything, at least directionally, we have some evidence that introverts report even more pleasant experiences than extroverts. And this doesn't just come from my research. Like Will Fleeson, who's a personality psychologist, has done a bunch of studies where he looks at like lot more longitudinal, like daily diary studies, where he has people engage in a certain behavior for multiple weeks, like two weeks at a time. And he asks people to behave in extroverted ways. And he asks both extroverts to do this and introverts to do this, right? So everyone becomes more social and they also become more extroverted in other ways for the purpose of the experiment. And what he finds is that, yeah, so extroverts, they're, they're happy to do that. They're happy to engage in extroverted behavior. 
but like surprisingly, so are introverts. Right. So at least in the short term, in terms of what they're reporting for their mood, they're also reporting that they're happy to engage in that behavior. Now, that's not to say that there couldn't be sort of like long term consequences for introverts where they feel, you know, maybe more drained in terms of their energy levels or something, which hasn't been necessarily empirically captured. But it is still interesting that they at least report like in the moments that they, too, feel happier when they engage in that kind of behavior. Yes, I'm somewhat introverted and I have a lot of friends who are very introverted being in grad school and we love to throw parties and then the day after to just <laughs> not talk to anyone <laughs> and just like hide <laughs> it and, and relax. But during the party, it's great. And it's not like introverts don't like people, right? They just get exhausted from social interaction more easily. Yeah, I love that. Inter uh, that you might have sort of like a refractory period afterwards where you kind of like yeah. recover. Yeah, actually one of the one, you know, the one personality, like I said, we measured all of the personality characteristics, the big five, you know, openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And uh, the one that we find actually affects people's experiences the most is not extroversion. It's neuroticism. <laughs> neuroticism affects people's experiences the most, particularly because when people are in solitude and they're neurotic, they have really bad experience. So if anything, sort of there's this interaction effect that we found in a couple different experiments in which highly neurotic people, they kind of need to be in a social situation almost to kind of buffer them against their, themselves and their own neuroticism. So that was like the one personality trait that seemed to matter. Yes. And this is where we get to the mechanisms of why it is so hard for us to start these conversations with strangers. So let's say, you know, I have been familiar with this work for a couple of years now. And yet, <laughs> every time I am on a plane, on a bus, on a train, and I see all these strangers, and I know it would be good for me to talk to them, I really don't want to. <laughs> and I don't know if it's my anxiety, or if I just think I, I don't know what to say, and who knows what kind of person they are, and if they will say something mean, right? Let's say I get on the bus, and I might say hi to the bus driver, and if they say hi, then, you know, that's a little bit good, but if they say something like, well, I just get on the bus, which, you know, mm -hmm. I did college in Berlin, then <laughs> that's really the norm. It's really unpleasant. And those are the kinds of interactions I recall afterwards, kind of. And maybe uh -huh. those negative effects that weigh more heavily than the positive effects, maybe they make us more cautious. I think it's a, a great question. And I think you're ahead of the game, Eric, because I think most people actually mispredict what the experience will be like. So at least you kind of have the kind of knowledge about the research that you know that this experience has the potential to be good. Like you've seen that in the experiments. <laughs> But I think a lot of people, like they don't even want to, start a conversation because they expect it, that it'll be bad. Right. And then the, you know, why do they expect it to be bad? I think there's a lot of different reasons. So one that we found a lot of evidence for is that people are really worried about the process of starting the conversation. And in particular, they don't think that the other person will want to engage with them or talk to them. Um, so, you know, th this is, I think this shows up in some contexts more than others. Like we talked about public transportation, when you're sitting on a train, Do you want to talk to a stranger? I think that's a context where people are very concerned about whether the other person would want to talk to them. And I think we find evidence for pluralistic, pluralistic ignorance there in the sense that people see others not talking. Maybe they have their headphones in, maybe they're looking on their phones, right? And they infer, oh, that person must not want to talk. And so, in fact, what we find in our experiments is that everyone says they're like somewhat willing to have a conversation. They kind of put themselves at the midpoint of the scale in terms of openness. But everybody thinks everyone else doesn't want to have a conversation, right? So there's kind of a gap 
in terms of beliefs. And so I think what people are doing is they're inferring others' attitudes from their behavior when in fact their behavior is really more due to the norms there, right? So the norm is like not to have loud conversations in these types of contexts. And so that doesn't mean that people don't want to talk. It's more like they're just kind of following, following the norms or they're just trying to distract themselves by looking on their phone. That doesn't mean that they don't necessarily want to talk to you. Right. So I think that's something that that comes up. And people are also very concerned about related to this, very concerned about being rejected. So like a lot of I think the fears come from the start of the conversation. Like, will the other person want to talk to me? Are they going to reject me? In one of our experiments, people estimated that more than 50% of others would, would not be willing to talk back to them. So if they were to try to start a conversation, you know, half the people would just like refuse to talk to them, (laughs) which I think is wildly off base. Like, I think that, you know, in our actual experiments, people report that they can almost always strike up a conversation with the first person they approach. You know, it's like 95% of the time they can start, you know, and if that doesn't work, they go to the next person, right? But 95% of the time, the other person is responding back to them. So I think people are like underestimating the role of the norm to just reciprocate in a pleasant way when someone kind of approaches you and says hi to you, right? And some of these, they don't have to be long conversations either. Some of these are just short conversations where people are sort of exchanging pleasantries. In our experiments, we have, you know, a really wide range of conversations that are just like five minute pleasantries versus like people that talk for a full hour on their entire commute and like exchange phone numbers and like become, you know, connections. And what's interesting is that like people's self-reported happiness by the end of the trip doesn't correlate that strongly with the length of time that they talk. It's more like the fact that they talked at all is what sort of makes them happy. Another thing that we think might be going on, and Eric, this is, you just un- opened up like a rabbit hole. <laughs> Please go ahead. Another thing that might be going on is we find that people seem to focus a little bit too much on their own competence as opposed to how others will perceive their warmth. And so you, Eric, for example, might be really focused on like, am I going to be able to make conversation in a way that's really clever? Like, am I going to be able to say the right things? Am I going to start the conversation with just the right line in my head? And then we see this for other types of like pro-social gestures as well. Like when you're thinking about paying someone a compliment, like, am I going to be able to say just the right compliment? I don't want to offend them, blah, blah, blah. And so people get inside their own heads a little bit, kind of with some of those questions. Whereas from the recipient perspective, I think the recipient really just like, they don't really think about, oh, was that exactly the right way to start the conversation? Instead, what they're thinking about is like, oh, that person was trying to make a nice gesture. They were well-intentioned to me. Like they're friendly, essentially. And so I just appreciate as the recipient, I just appreciate that you were being sort of friendly and warm to me. And so I think that's another gap that comes up, which is the person who's thinking about initiating the conversation isn't recognizing enough how much another person will just appreciate their friendly gesture. And instead, they kind of get into their head in terms of thinking about their competency. I feel this most strongly when a friend comes to me with a problem they have. My boss said something bad about me or my partner broke up with me. And the first thing I think is, how am I going to solve this, right? What is the right thing that I have to say to help them overcome this problem immediately, right? To help Mm -hmm. them regulate their emotions in whatever way. It's hard to know that and it's not my decision to make, right? Mm -hmm. All I have to do is really to be there. And oftentimes when they just talk about it and I listen and I don't even say anything, that's already helpful because you're signaling, I'm here for you. I'm helping you. And that's enough. We don't have to know what to say. Yeah, I love that. And I also think that, you know, if you get too caught up with like, I might not have exactly the right thing to say, you may say nothing at all. And then, you know, the, you know, I think that's worse than if you were to try. 
we actually have a paper that we just wrote on like constructive feedback. And so this is like feedback that could help someone solve their problem. Um, so things like, you know, you have a stain on your shirt. You might want to think about changing your shirt before you walk into that meeting or, you know, <laughs> and people, and the, you know, of course there's like a moment of awkwardness or it's like telling the person that there's something bad, but, but, but it's really valuable in the long run for the other person, right? Because if you had a stain on your shirt, wouldn't you want to know that before you walk into the big meeting? Or if you're, turns out you've been mispronouncing the client's name, like, wouldn't you want to know that before you talk to the client again? But this is, that's another context where people feel like, Ooh, I probably shouldn't give that feedback because it'll just be uncomfortable and painful for the other person. And they're not realizing how much like the other person is going to value and appreciate it because it would really help them in the long run. I'm still thinking about how people believe that no one will have anything to talk with them about, that no one will want to talk to them, that, you know, on public transport, what are we even going to talk about? I know you have other research on how people think the beginning of a conversation that'll be fun, but then we kind of run out of topics and we don't know what to talk about and then it'll be awkward afterwards. When in social psychology research, there is so much work on what is called the minimal group paradigm, where it turns out it really takes very little for people to form a social bond and have grounds for a topic, right? I'm mm. German, I live in California. Whenever I run into someone from Greece, I'm like, hey, we're European, we are basically the same, which really we are not, right? But it's like, we're constantly looking for the smallest cues that we have something in common with people and then immediately form a certain, you know, minimal bond with them. Uh -huh. And it seems like that would be easy for us then to leverage that. And maybe that's part of the function of small talk, right? To play around a little bit and see what you and the other person have in common. And yet we think, oh, there's all these people and who knows what they're thinking about. I have nothing in common with them. And that's a really isolating experience that makes people really lonely. Yeah, we actually, Nick Epley, one of my colleagues, my prior research advisor, and I had a hypothesis that was just like that, but we didn't collect empirical data on it. But the hypothesis was essentially that people would not realize how quickly they find common ground in a conversation, which is like, you think you're like hunting for a needle in a haystack, like, oh, how am I going to find, you know, something in common with this other person? But in fact, all of conversation is built around the idea that you're going to zero in on the stuff that you have in common right away, you know? And in fact, like in these experiments, we ran with people talking to other strangers almost always they start off with something that they think will lead to common ground. You know, hey, here we are on this train together going into downtown Chicago. Do you work in Chicago? You know, so they just are start asking questions that relate to what, and so you narrow in immediately on kind of common ground. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, and all our friends used to be strangers, right? It's not like we pick our friends by having some sort of, I mean, maybe some academics do that, <laughs> some sort of pro-con list for each person and how they match our values and goals. Person, no. Right? You just sit next to someone in college in the lecture hall and you ask them, do you know what this professor is talking about? No, no idea. We should get together and talk about it. And then a couple of years later, you're best friends. And you know, this is how it happens, just talking to people. And then you never know what's going to happen. Right. The, the really interesting thing about studying conversation is that it's sort of this game theory problem, which is that you know, at every single step of the conversation, the, from the start of it to the middle of it, to how do you end it? you have this challenge of like, you have to try to read the other person in order to have sort of the best possible experience for both of you. It's called a, it's, we call it a coordination problem, which is like that there are some reasons why the other person may not reveal everything honestly to you, right? So maybe they really want to leave the conversation, but they 
because they're trying to be polite, (laughs) they're not going to directly say that. And so then you're having to kind of guess and you don't have perfect transparent information. And that can sort of lead to all these like weird things happening of like each person trying to guess what the other person is thinking and getting it a little bit wrong. And so then things happen where it's like, okay, I I think you don't want to talk to me because you're reading your phone and therefore I'm not going to talk to you, even though you actually did want to talk to me. So there, there's sort of an error that happens. Or I think you want to leave the conversation because I see you looking toward the door. But in fact, you were just distracted for a minute. You don't want to leave the conversation. But now I'm going to end it because I think you want to leave it. So now I've ended it, you know, and then, <laughs> and then as you so nicely point out, like all all relationships, you start as strangers and you have conversation to build up the relationship. Um, and so then there's sort of this question of like, you know, how long to continue the conversation or how many conversations to have with the other person, which is kind of the middle of the conversation piece. Um, and I have done some work on that piece. And there, what we find is the error that people make is that they tend to think of, they think that conversations will run dry, like they'll run out of material to talk about a lot faster than they actually do. And the psychology there is that it's hard to simulate a conversation accurately because conversation by its very nature has like a million ways in which it can branch out, right? Especially if you don't know the other person, right? Like how can I possibly simulate a conversation with you, Eric, if we haven't talked many times before, because I just don't know like what, how you're going to respond to me. I don't know what the future is going to look like. I don't know what you have in your mind yet. Right. And so like, I have to talk in order to sort of figure that out. (laughs) And so because of this, like, when you ask people to try to simulate a conversation, like, how is it going to go? Like, how long should it last? And so on. They think, oh, well, I don't know. Like, it'll, I guess I'm going to, I'll say everything I have to say. I have no idea what the other person is going to say. And then we're going to stop talking. <laughs> right? But that's not really what happens. And so actually, we have some evidence in, in that paper that I was just referring to that suggests that because people just think of conversations as kind of like one dimensional way, they can't really fully incorporate all the richness that is inherent in a conversation they think that it's going to get boring, they're going to lose interest, or the other person will lose interest. Those are kind of like dual processes. And that they're going to they they want to end it earlier than they should if they want to have a better and happier experience. So like we have one experiment, for example, where we let people we have them simulate a conversation in advance, we let them choose when they want to end the conversation in one condition, one experimental condition, and another experimental condition, we also have them simulate the conversation, but we force them to stay in it for a full 30 minutes. (laughs) All right. So in the first condition where they can leave whenever they want, on average, pairs left the conversation after 15 minutes. And so then after they leave the conversation, they're bored because they're sitting in the laboratory. (laughs) They don't have much to do. And so then they, you know, have basically a worse experience, right? Whereas if they were forced to stay in the conversation for the full 30 minutes, they actually have a much better and more interesting experience. So it's, you know, it's a nice example of a context in which allowing people to just have free choice, make the decision they want, leads them to make this decision that's suboptimal for their own happiness. Wow. So it's hard to predict conversations and who knows what's going to happen and what the other person is going to be like. One tempting solution then is, well, not to have any conversations with anyone at all. Right. <laughs> and just to then we'd all be very off. sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no relationships. But, right. <laughs> but that is the strategy that many people pursue willingly or not. And uh, some people would rather dramatically say that in a lot of countries right now, we have a loneliness epidemic. 
And I always thought there was a certain irony in that, right? There's all these people who are lonely, right? And it's only as if we could bring these people, these lonely people together and talk to each other, right? There's a very simple solution to that. But of course, it's not that simple to actually implement that. And you talk about one other mechanism of under sociality of the phenomenon that we are less social than would be good for us and other people, which is asymmetric feedback, which it does not sound like an exciting term, but I think it's really exciting, which is the idea, if I talk to people, I will find out what they're like. But if I don't talk to them, I will never find out. And I can just stick to whatever I simulated the conversation would have been like. And I can get really neurotic and, and distrustful and have all kinds of versions of what people are like. And this all would have been horrible. Thank God I didn't talk to them by not talking to them. But it's, it's yeah, that's that's exactly the sort of wicked environment I was referring to earlier, where it's like people don't learn, you know, what what it would be like to talk if they never try it. Exactly. And what's so interesting about that is it's not fixed what other people are like and whether our conversation with them is going to be interesting. We have some agency in this. Right. So one thing that I study is uh, self-fulfilling prophecies and first impressions. Mm -hmm. And if you interact with someone for the first time, and if you start out the conversation assuming this will be horrible, I will hate them, this will be terrible, you know, it's the same as in dating. You go on a date and you're like, I know this will be horrible, I can't wait for this to be over. Well, it's going to be over, it's going to be horrible because you're not going to be in it, you're not going to be interested, same with talking mm -hmm. to people. But if you approach it and you're like, maybe this could be my new best friend, <laughs> maybe that's a bit dramatic, but you know, at least this could be an interesting conversation. It seems like you would set the tone very differently and the other person will reciprocate in a certain way. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that, you know, particularly when you're engaging with someone that you don't know, you've never met before, or what we call like mixed motive situations in which you might be competing or, or cooperating with the other person. Like if you're going into a negotiation with them, like you don't know if they're going to cooperate with you. You don't know if you can trust them. The things that happen at the very beginning of the interaction can have a really big impact because it sets like the tone, the mindset for the whole engagement. You know, so Eric, if you come into the room, I don't know what to expect. I've never met you before. And then you smile at me, right? Like now I'm, I'm already updating. I'm like, oh, like he's, he's being friendly. Like maybe he's going to cooperate. Right. And then that might make me more likely to smile back at you. And then, you now we're already in sort of like a positive feedback loop. Whereas if you walk into the room and you like, you know, refuse to shake my hand, <laughs> then now we're in sort of the negative feedback loop. And so I think, I think that's exactly right. That those sort of little interactions that you have at the very beginning of those, um, at the very first time that you meet someone and your mindset coming into it can certainly shape, shape the interaction. We have a paper where we looked at this in terms of people's willingness to shake hands. And we exactly find that, that if people are willing to put out their hand for another person to shake at the start of a negotiation, the other person is very likely to, to shake back. And that starts them into sort of this positive cooperative cycle. They're more likely to cooperate with one another compared to if they just seated far away from each other and just can't engage in that simple handshake. Do we know anything about the link between culture and under sociality? That is, are independent people more under social than interdependent people, right? So independent people who define themselves as the free agent in the world. And yeah, I have family and friends, but they kind of lose individuals. Whereas interdependent cultures, more East Asian cultures, for example, you're more interdependent with your group. You have more obligations and rules to your family and friends and your inner circle community, which is, sounds kind of like the forced social interaction and it can feel forced very much certain times it's not just voluntary interactions do we know anything about the link between culture and under sociality yeah that's an interesting hypothesis um eric we've collected a little bit of data on this like for example we have conducted experiments where we've had strangers talk 
in places in the US, like the Midwest and then the West Coast. We've done the East Coast. We've also done this like in the UK now. We haven't really gone to like sort of a more interdependent culture, but, but basically based on the data that we have, here's what I would say is that I think culture makes a really big difference in terms of people's predictions, you know? So how do they expect it to go? And there, you know, there's certain cultures that are well known for like talking to strangers all the time. Like, I mean, you know, like in Latin America, like apparently this is quite common. Um, And there are other cultures where like, that's really not done. Like in the UK, like that's, you know, it's not seen as like, no, at least in certain regions, <laughs> it's not seen as something that you're really supposed to be doing. And so there are different norms around that, the different predictions. And so I think that culture can influence that. But in terms of does culture influence the amount of happiness people get from actually interacting or not, um, there, I don't think culture has as much of an influence. So what we found is that like people's predictions about the experience kind of vary based on their, you know, their own experiences, their culture and so on. But in terms of like, the actual experiences, it's very reliable, the results. We always get this exact same pattern of results, which is that people always report feeling happier when they've had a conversation compared to not having a conversation, you know, across every culture we've looked at so far. Right. And so I think, you know, what you see is that, yeah, culture might moderate what you expect and what you, what you actually will engage in, but I don't think it matters for the actual experiences. I think your experience kind of overrides culture in terms of like humans are social animals. So I think that's sort of a more universal result. It's interesting to think about cultural mismatch then. So Mm. in Germany, we don't really have a culture of talking to people at all. And it's really, we're polite, but it's kind of awkward. And then I moved to Latin America for a year after high school, since you just brought Uh it up to Peru. And my God, it's a very different norm. And we, we talked about, you know, who knows what's going to happen if you talk to this person? And that's really embodied there. And that's what happened to me. And, you know, one day I was uh, talking to people, asking for help doing my laundry because I didn't know how to do it. And talked to someone and then she introduced me to her daughter and she introduced me to her family. And then a couple months later, I had a godchild uh, and I was baptizing her daughter and as, as the godfather. <laughs> wow. What's going to happen? And it's, it's good. That kind of stuff will not happen to you in Germany. Like that's all. a great that's story, great, Eric. Right? And so it's, it's, it's an uplifting take, right? And this anxiety is, can be a good thing. It's like all this potential of talking to these people. There's all these interesting people around here. And I have a friend or someone I talked to last week who knew about your work with Nick Apley and then the train study. And he said, that's really interesting. I'm going to set myself a challenge for 30 days. Every day I will talk to someone in a really uncomfortable, awkward way <laughs> and see what happens. And it was after that month that I talked to him. And so I said, well, how did it go? And he said, well, there were two or three kind of awkward interactions, but otherwise I've made so many new friends and I'm going to keep doing this for the foreseeable future and everyone should do it, which leads me (laughs) to ask you, (laughs) um, do you have any challenges you would suggest for our listeners who might hear this and say, okay, well, I want to put myself out there a little bit more, maybe not this much, maybe that's extreme, but any challenges that you have for people, any exercises or, you know, mini interventions that you would suggest? That's amazing. I love that story. I I will all say that, you know, I am more of an introvert and that the research really did change my views on it. You know, once I got those findings, like, oh, people are so reliably happier once they've had the conversation, you know, no matter 
like how long they talk or like even if it's someone completely different from them they're talking to, like it's just a really reliable finding that I thought, okay, like I should be engaging more, you know, like I'm not the type of person who would talk to someone on a train, but like I should try this out. And so I do, I mean, it's very, you know, I'm not doing this 30 days in a row, like your friend, I'm very impressed with your friend. <laughs> I'm just you know, on the margins, right? If I'm sitting alone, I'm bored. Like, I'm like, well, maybe I should try reaching out. Like I do try to go ahead and initiate. And I'm trying to do things like provide more pro-social feedback to people. Like, even though that could be uncomfortable sometimes, like, because I think that that, you know, will have a beneficial impact for them in the long run. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, to engage in that more. And also sometimes like these decision points where I don't know if you have this experience, I have it all the time where it's like, should I go to that happy hour <laughs> or should I stay in my office and keep writing that paper? <laughs> and it's, you know, it's a common sort of decision point that we have. Like, do you go to that conference or do you skip it? And I try to like say, okay, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go for a very short amount of time and just, you know, see what happens. And I think part of like, I think that's half the battle is just sort of like getting up and going and like start, you know, putting yourself into a social context, forcing yourself to go to this thing for just even just a little while. And so I've been trying to do that. And I've, you know, I've had some success stories, I'll say for sure. (laughs) Made some new friends. (laughs) I'm also thinking about how cities could be structured in a different way to enable social interaction, because I feel Uh like cities differ a lot in how much they are built for, you know, banks and cars versus for people interacting with one another in parks and cafes on the streets and you know certain differences between countries and within countries between different cities is that something you think about and if we have any i guess city designers architects mm-hmm. listening to this what is the takeaway for them yeah I've, i've actually talked to a bunch of different designers of parks, like public parks and museums in different, a couple of different areas. And it's very interesting to think about how can you design a, a space differently in order to encourage more social engagement, social interaction. And it's even like subtle things like, do you put two benches kind of near each other, like angled in toward each other, or do you put them really far apart and separate? Right. right? And because we know that If you have a bench, like people aren't going to want to sit right next to each other in a lot of cultures, some cultures, perhaps <laughs> a lot of cultures, people want to sit on their own bench, but if they're close enough to each other, they'll actually talk to one another. Or even like I talked to someone who his whole job is to design auditory experiences in, in public spaces. And so you can do things with music that allow people to engage with one another more or less. Right. And you can even do things like you play music along a pathway. So it kind of leads people to walk in a particular direction. Right. And so you can think about that. Like when you're walking into a club and it's like really loud, you can't hear anyone. So that gives you a certain experience versus like something where when you're ready for people to talk, like the music quiets down and then like people can start to talk to one another. So it's really interesting to kind of think about all the nuances of how can you design a public experience that encourages social engagement, even with strangers. And I love that you take a bit of a normative stance on this, saying that this is really good because we know that people are suffering because they are lonely, because they really feel like there's no one like them, no one they can share their problems with. And you have some work on dehumanization. And there almost seems to be a certain accidental dehumanization mechanism that we have where we only see the outside of other people, but we know our own inside, right? And maybe that is why we have all these struggles of, you know, I have all these feelings and all these problems and all these people, they seem to have it all together. 
And it's, it's a kind of dehumanization, right? That they don't have these psychological problems, but we do. But it's really just that we see our own insights and we have access to our thoughts, but it's much harder to access the thoughts of others. Yeah, we've um, built from this philosophical problem called the other minds problem. So, you know, for centuries, philosophers has kind of like puzzled over this issue, which is that we only have direct introspective access into our own minds and we just don't have access into other people's minds. So we have to engage in this kind of like inferential guesswork of like, what is in that other person's mind? Like trying to kind of read them. And so, you know, the, the philosophical version of this is like solipsism, which is that because I only have access into my own mind. I, I can only logically conclude that my mind exists. I can't assume that anyone else has a mind at all. <laughs> now, of course, psychologically, that's not really what people do. We don't like walk around being like, do people have minds? I don't even know. Like <laughs> we just assume like that other people, yeah, we assume other people do have minds. But what we've um, argued is that there is some kind of like remnant of this problem that exists in, in psychology. It's called the lesser minds problem which is exactly what you were talking about, Eric, which is that because I don't have access, direct access into your mind, it's easy for me as the perceiver to not see your mind as being quite as vivid or as strong as my own. I kind of see it as being lesser in all these different ways. Um, and so you can find all sorts of different examples of this, um, where people rate others as having, you know, they're, they're more biased in their viewpoints, whereas I am more objective, you know? So like, I think those are all instantiations of what we call the lesser minds problem. And we would consider it a subtle form of dehumanization to the extent that being human means having mind and having sophisticated mental capacities, you know? And so to the extent that people perceive that to be the case when they think of others as being kind of irrational or just being plain stupid, that's sort of a, those are dehumanizing attributes. And I think you're, you're right that this can happen, you know, inadvertently, you know, you don't have to necessarily be malicious and saying like, that person is an idiot, you know, that's sort of like a malicious version. But I think you can just say, oh, you know, they're, they don't really have quite the same sort of mental capacities as I myself do. Right? And that can be sort of like, a general assumption we make all the time about sort of the average person in the world, like I'm better than them. And that's sort of a dehumanizing general tendency that, that people have. We see it all the time. That's right. So moving on to you as a person, oh, okay. beyond your research, you just became a mother. Congratulations. And Thank you. How, how has that journey been for you as an academic, as a mother, work-life balance? How, how has it been? How are you doing? Yeah, well, the, actually, this is my second child. So I have a, a six-year-old, and then now I have a four-month-old. Um, and it's funny because I, as soon as I got the faculty position at UC Berkeley, I graduated with my PhD, and then I went on the job market. And then as soon as I got that faculty position, I became pregnant, which I'm sure like they didn't love that. You're like, oh, wow, you're, you're already pregnant. Um, but it worked. The timing worked out really well. It was not planned. It was just random that that happened. Um, and that timing worked out well for me, right? So I actually taught my very first class as a faculty member during like the third trimester of pregnancy. And then I gave birth 
during the summer, kind of like took the summer, which was really fun. And then, you know, mostly came back during the next um, school year. So the timing actually worked out really well. I think one of the like amazing things about academia is that they have like incredible maternity leave policies and and paternity leave policies, most schools, I'd say, which is that usually you can get like a year, a year off. And different schools have like different policies in terms of like how much time you get off and whether you get all of your teaching removed or whether you just get a reduction. But Berkeley has a really, really good policy where you can get no, you don't have to teach for basically a full year. So, you know, I took full advantage of that and that was great. And then this, this time was a little bit different because I had the baby during the spring semester. So I sort of had that experience of like, as I'm having the baby, like people are like doing things like they're in classes, like people are busy. Right. So I feel like I'm kind of missing out on all that, but in some ways it's been kind of nice because I took the spring semester and now I'm taking the summer. So it's sort of, I feel like I have like a longer period of relaxation. (laughs) I love to hear it. Yeah. Because especially on social media, on Twitter, you always hear the horror stories about things not working out when you had children before tenure and all the problems that do exist in academia, but it's good to hear a success story kind of. If I can yeah. And I think, you know, having childcare support, I think is important and like having family in the area, like all those things I think are important. I, I am like a big proponent of everyone having kids. <laughs> <laughs> and I think like, you know, just because you're in academia, it doesn't mean that that should prevent you from doing it. Right now. It's certainly like, that's why I kind of mentioned the timing issue because I I know a lot of women who are like, oh, I need to time it exactly right. Right. And sometimes if you want to wait until you have tenure, that's hard because people don't get tenure until they're like 35 or 40 or, you know, 50, but you can't really wait that long sometimes. (laughs) So I don't, I don't really advocate waiting. I think you should just do it on your own timeline. I don't think there's ever really a right time or a good time to have kids. So I just found out that there's a happy hour going on where you're at right now. So I really don't want to keep you any longer than I have to, (laughs) given what we were just talking about. However, um, maybe one last question. How do you know a research idea is worth pursuing? And then building on this, what research ideas do you want to pursue in the future, in the coming years? So I like to pursue ideas that keep me up at night. You know, the sort of thing where I'll see it in the world. I'll see something that's unusual. Sometimes I'll I'll read about it in literature as well. And then it it just bothers me. I'm like, why do people do that? You know, or like, for example, in the conversations that we talked about, like why, why, why aren't people willing to talk to strangers? Why is it that all of the research shows that social connection is so good? But in this context, it does seem like people don't really want to engage with strangers. Like, why does that happen? And if I start like thinking about it and puzzling over it, and I like actually start losing sleep over it, then that's like my signal that like, okay, I think it's worth studying. <laughs> you know, I'll do a quick check to make sure it hasn't been studied already. <laughs> Sometimes that does happen. It's like, oh, it turns out like this is a fascinating topic and like lots of research has been done on it. <laughs> but it's, you know, especially if it keeps me up and there's not that much research on it, then I'm, I'm willing to jump into it. And I actually have a pretty low bar for like running experiments. You know, if it's, if it's interesting and I'm, I, I will, I'll just go ahead and run the experiment. Like, why not? Like, what do you have to lose? Cause I think you can always kind of learn from that. Even if you don't end up pursuing the project or writing the paper, I have lots and lots of like studies that are just sort of like hanging out in space, like a single study of something interesting that I thought, you know, once about, <laughs> and like, who knows, I might come back to it later on in my life, but I don't think it hurts to have, you know, have the data. So is it fair to assume that you will keep studying under sociality and that there are many more papers to come? 
Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, looking forward to that. Thank you so much for this conversation. That was really fun. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsypod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.